Let me quote you the words of a very famous American philosopher. Their fame has gone throughout the world, and part of their philosophy is this. Tumble out of bed and stumble into the kitchen. Pour myself a cup of ambition. Yawn and stretch and try to come alive. Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping. Out on the streets, the traffic starts jumping. For folks like me on the job from nine to five. They just use your mind. They never give you credit. It's enough to drive you crazy if you let it. Nine to five for service and devotion. You think that I would deserve a big fat promotion. Want to move ahead, but the boss won't seem to let me. I swear sometimes that man is out to get me. In the same boat with a lot of your friends. Waiting for the day your ship will come in. The tide's going to turn and going to roll you away. Nine to five, yeah, they got you where they want you. There's a better life. And you think about it, don't you? What a way to make a living, barely getting by. It's all taken and no given. Nine to five, they've got you where they want you. There is a better life. You dream about it, don't you? As much as we laugh, that song hits on something deep within our psyche in this world, does it not? That there is a better life out there. That there is more to this life than the nine to five living. You get up, you eat, you sleep, you repeat, you do the same thing. And the crowds that follow Jesus, the context for our passage today was the feeding of the 5,000, which is actually not correct. It's 5,000 men plus women and children. And as Jesus miraculously fed them from his provision, they had their bellies filled. Who likes to eat? Not a profound question, is it? I mean, look at the shape of me. I love eating. And I love to have my belly full. And I'm looking forward. I'm, I'm going home today for a Sunday roast. And then I'm going to be horizontal. We love to be filled. But in our culture, we're so divorced. I mean, if you asked a kid nowadays, honey, where does the food come from? What are they likely to say to you? Tesco's or McDonald's. We're so divorced from this culture, but in those days, the food came from the land, this pre-Agarian, poor culture. Day by day, they lived by food. That's why one of the prayers in the Lord's prayers, give us this day our daily bread. And bread made up 85%. It took, sorry, 85% of their salaries. Isn't that quite a figure? So they literally worked all day to put food on the table to see the food disappear, to get up the next day to put food on the table to see the food disappear. I don't think they worked nine to five. They worked when the sun came up at six in the morning right through to the sunset at six in the evening, laboring hard. So does it surprise us then that this crowd would pursue Jesus around the Lake of Galilee, does it? This guy had miraculously fed them. He had given them a pay rise of 85%. Isn't that brilliant? They want it. They want to have their burdens lifted. They want to have their dream come by. They want to have peace in their life. They want to have provisions. And so they pursue him. They drive around the sea to see him. And when they arrive, it starts in our chapter. Rabbi, how did you get here? Now, I'm glad that Jesus is more restrained because if I was Jesus, I'd said, well, I walked here. And he did, didn't he? When he walked across that stormy sea as if it was just a mere stroll through the arboretum up in the corner there. And in the midst of it, I love this. Actually, there's a wee clue here to what Jesus is about to do, because this saying today is the first I am statement. If you go back to verse 20 there in your Bibles, chapter 6, verse 20, what does it say? It says in this one, it is I, do not be afraid. 
But actually what he said there had echoes. He said, I am. I am. He's setting the stage already. He's miraculously fed them from heaven. And now he is proclaiming in the midst of a stormy sea that only, as Job said, only the Lord can walk on the depths of the sea. And this echo comes through from the burning bush back in Exodus. I am who I am. And this crowd comes to him. And Jesus pulls them up straight away. He doesn't, he doesn't say, great guys, you found me, well done. He doesn't invite them for a cup of tea. He does all the things you're not supposed to do when you're welcoming people to church. He says, what are you living for? Straight away. He cuts right to the heart of them. He sees us tired, driven, hungry, thirsty, proud. Who are engaging in the rat race, who are wondering what life is all about. Is there more to it than this? Have you ever asked yourself those questions? I'm sure you have. Jesus cuts right to the heart of it. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking the things. You're not seeking me. You're seeking me because you're hungry. Do not work for the food that perishes. Now, Jesus here is not saying that they shall pitch up tents and never work ever again. No, the text here in verse 27 says, do not pour yourself. Have you ever been down to London and walked amongst the city, the financial district? And you see these guys who pour themselves into it, and they're, they're wrecked looking, aren't they? Or perhaps you've been up to places where here in Lincoln where folk are working three or four jobs to try and get by, and they're wrecked. They're pouring themselves into it. Their entire focus is for food that does not satisfy. And Jesus says to them, what will you live for? What is your goal in life? What is your aim? What is your dreams and desires? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Or as I, I mean, even, even the, 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 the chewing gum commercials are asking this question. Don't you love it when TV ads ask you philosophy at 10 o'clock at night? I was watching the TV last night, and have you seen that ad where the guy's in the lift, and he pulls out the chewing gum, and he sticks it in his mouth, and then he goes bang, and he starts dancing around the office place? Wrigley's and I ask you, what, what's your ding? What are you living for? What are you pouring yourself in for? What are you pouring yourself out for? Is it money? It's funny how money never seems to be enough, is it? Some of the most miserable people I know are millionaires. No, it's not money. Is it likes and Facebook? Getting enough hits? Seeing if your TikTok account has exploded and you've become a millionaire? How fickle that is, how fickle fame is, is it not? Those who have the most of this world are often the most miserable. So Jesus says, what will you live for? And then he challenges them with three things. Verse 29 there, firstly, he says, work for the right thing. Do the right work. Notice here the interplay between Jesus and the crowd. Jesus frequently is saying things to the people that they just don't get. Don't labor for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. When John talks about eternal life, he's not just talking about time. He's talking about quality, quantity, and magnitude. Eternal life is this flowing, surging, yes, in time too, but in quality and deepness, fuller and fuller it floweth, going deeper every day. The Son of Man will give this to you. So they say to him, they think, oh, this is great, because in Jewish thought, the Messianic age, the guys would be fed from heaven every day. This bread would just appear like Moses did in the manna. And they think, this is great. This guy, Jesus, he's promised he's going to give us our pan loaf every day. Jesus says, no, guys. 
Do the right work. When you come to God, don't come to God searching for what makes you feel better. Don't use God as a genie or a magic eight ball. Don't try and manipulate God to fill your earthly needs. This is the work. This is the primary thing that God has called you to do. And as Paul reminded us a few weeks ago, John 20, verse 30 and 31 is the text that controls the whole gospel. This is written that you might believe in the Son of Man and in believing in him have life. And here is one of the clearest texts in the gospel of John. What does God want for you? What is the work that God has called us to do? The sovereign of the universe, the king of kings, the unapproachable majesty. What does he want from you? Have you ever asked yourself that question? This is what he wants you to do. To believe in his son whom he has sent. Isn't that beautiful? The one thing God demands you is the one thing that we think is so simple, so easy, but it's to lean with our whole heart and trust in him. Martin Luther says this, to have God is to not take hold of him with our hands or to put him into our handbag like money. I translate it to a modern world a wee bit. Or into a drawer like jewelry. Instead, to have the Lord, to believe in him means that the heart takes hold of him and clings to him clings to him with a heart that is to trust him entirely. For this reason, God wishes us to turn away and from all labors that exist outside of him and to draw us to himself. To believe in God is to trust in him fully in his revelation, to lean entirely upon Jesus Christ for salvation, for hope. St. Augustine picks up to you in this longing in all of our hearts. Augustine says, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. That crowd thought they were filled with bread, but they got hungry again. People in this world think that the next drug hit will take them to that nirvana, which will ease all problems. People think money will buy them happiness. People labor and long to fill this ache in their soul that only Jesus Christ can fill. And he offers to fill it. He offers us to come to him. He calls us to have faith and to trust in him as the revelation of God. God has set his seal upon him, his approval upon him. Friends, do the right work. Make sure when you're living your life, do the right work. Trust primarily and only in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Whosoever believes in him. I never tire of quoting this text. Whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. Do the right work, trust him. Secondly, do it for the right reason. I love this crowd. I mean, talk about a bunch, I was going to say a Scottish word there. It's not nice to say, so let me change that. A bunch of Egypts. I mean, really, Jesus has just said them here. Like he's fed 5,000 men plus. He has given this miraculous thing. Trust in me and I will give you eternal life. And they turn around and what do they say to him? Oh, well, prove it to us. Really? What a bunch of Egypts. If you need translation for that, talk to somebody after the service. Well, look, look at verse 30 there. Then what sign do you do so that we may see and believe you? The guy's just walked in water. He's just fed 5,000 men plus women and children with leftovers. And then they try the comparison game. Oh, well, Jesus, you know, you, you did. You did feed 5,000. That's true. That was, that was good. But do you know Moses? 
Well, Moses fed the whole nation for 40 years. I mean, that's human nature, isn't it? You get something given to you and you want more, don't you? Leo Morris, one of the commentators in this passage, shared a story about how he was in a restaurant in Sydney, Australia. And trust the Australians to serve. It's called a big mud crab. I mean, that doesn't sound attractive, does it? How many want a big mud crab for your lunch? So this guy ordered the big mud crab, and it only came with one claw. So the guy asked the waiting staff, he said, you know, where's, where's the other claw? Crabs have two claws. Well, apparently these crabs like to fight with each other again. It's a very Australian thing. So this crab had knocked the lump out of the other crab and ripped its claw off. So there's only one claw. So the guy said, I want the winning crab. It's human nature, isn't it? Do the right work for the right reason. Yes, Moses did feed the people of Israel, but Moses was God's agent. In Exodus 16, verse 11 to 36, it was God who gave the instructions and did feed the people through Moses. And whilst they throw Scripture back at Jesus, the Scripture they throw back is Psalm 78, verse 24. They ignored the context that it was God who provided the food because they were grumbling so much and it was given to them out of the sheer grace and generosity of God, not because he's a magic genie. Do the right work for the right reasons. If you're coming to Christ, come as you are. Come in the honesty of your heart. Come, don't try and hide, don't try and use him for anything. Come broken upon his mercy and he will receive you. Do the right work for the right reason, for the right person. Don Carson commenting this passage says, faith is not an abstract thing. How many of you have shared the gospel with your friends or talked to somebody and somebody will have said to you, well, I've got faith. I believe in something. Is that, is that common when you're talking to folk? I've heard folk have faith, in, and I'm not making fun of them. This is, this is our culture, faith in healing crystals. Faith itself's almost become a, a, a magic charm, hasn't it? We actually had a lady in Scotland. We had a Christian bookstore in Scotland, a place called Cooper. It was called The Lighthouse. And we had a wee lady who came in. They, they, they sold books, but they did a ministry too. And this lady came in, and she always asked for prayer. And I was talking to her one day. And she says, you know, Daniel, I believe in the power of prayer, but I don't believe in God. And we laugh because we know prayer doesn't work without God. And yet, how common is that in our culture? Do the right work for the right reason and put your faith in the right person. The people of Israel thought it was Moses. And so they tried to compare Moses to Jesus. And Jesus says, hang on, guys. Great as Moses was, he was nothing without God. God give the manna. And actually, while you're talking about gifts from God, God the Father has given you his only son to be the bread of life. I come as a gift from God, says Jesus. And in verse 34, in fairness to them, they answer it the way it should be answered. I don't think they meant it that way. But we could say, amen, sir, give us this bread always. Give us Jesus always. Bread is basic to life, is it not? And even in our culture, when we're divorced from the farm and divorced from agrarian things, still, we always have a loaf of bread in the house, do we not? It's a staple to this day. And just as bread is basic to life, Jesus is, and I say this in brackets, not derogatory to him, but as a, he is basic to eternal life. J.C. Ryle said, let us never rest by faith until we have eaten this bread and can say in our hearts, Christ is mine. I have tasted that the Lord is gracious. I know and I feel that I am his.
do the right work, believe for the right reason, because you have felt conviction of your sin, because you know the hunger in your heart will not be satisfied by any. I mean, that's the great thing about history, isn't it? For 2,000, 6,000, how many thousand years we've tried to fill the hole in our hearts that God has left. Has it worked? No. But through Christ, it does. For the right person, trust in Jesus. He is amazing, is he not? He is the reason why we go on mission to spread the good news across this globe. He is the reason that we have the ding and the joy in our hearts when we know our sins forgiven and peace with him. Is Jesus not fantastic? Oh, please say amen. Don't fall asleep. He goes on. What will you live for? Live to do the right work for the right reason, for the right person. Why should you do that? For that person, the last part of our text, can give you eternal life. This morning, you and I are going to travel through a battlefield. I don't know if you realize that, but look at verse 37 with me there. Verse 37 has the wreckage of churches, theologians, and people's brains scattered all around the world. This is a battleground text. It's a text that Calvinists love to throw at Arminians in the first half, and it's a text that Arminians love to throw in Calvinists in the second half. And what we do when we do this is we fall into the trap, we grumble like the audience, and we miss Jesus in the midst of it. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and shall never thirst. But I say to you, you've seen me and yet do not believe. What will you live for? The right work, for the right reason, for the right person. Why? Because that person can give you eternal life. Three things to note about salvation here. One, it is a gift. It is a gift of his sheer grace and goodness. Ephesians 2, I know as a church you preached through Ephesians recently. Let me read this to you. You were dead in the trespass and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, the mind. We were like nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But I love that word. I love that when I see it in the Bible, B-U-T, but God. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him to the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own work. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Salvation is a gift. Jesus is given like manna to heaven from us. He is God's gift to the world. The origin of salvation starts in the kindness and goodness and sovereignty of the heart of God. God is the one who seeks us. God is the one who pursues us. We would not love him unless he first loved us. Even back in the Garden of Eden, Talk about stereotypes. Adam and Eve rebel against God. They sin. What do they do? They hide from him. What is human history but hiding from the living God? And they hide from him in the garden. And in the cool of the day, who walks amongst the garden looking for them? The Lord. Who pursues Israel? 
when Israel goes off. And I mean, talk about, again, like how many of you love reading 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles for your studies? Israel does great. Oh, no, Israel's got it wrong. Israel's messed up. The Lord has to redeem them. He does. And we forget that when we talk about things like predestination and election, whatever you fall in that, we forget that we're talking about the living God pursuing living people. Friend, this morning, stop fighting over the text and bear in mind that he has come for you. Don't grumble like the Jews and lose sight of the fact that Jesus is in the midst and he has come for you. I can charge you with the authority of God's word that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Election is a mystery of God, I believe it. But I also know that the same Bible teaches in the mystery of God that we are responsible for responding when God's spirit opens our hearts. And if you feel the Lord wooing you this morning, don't get lost in the theology. Come to him. He has come for you. You, young mom who is struggling with those kids. Kids are a blessing, aren't they? They're also a wonderful test of sanctification too, aren't they? I was talking to somebody today and their kid had thrown up on them this morning. Oh, that's lovely. That's, that's nice. God bless you. He has come for you. Friend who has been in and out of church for years, who's maybe felt rejected by church, who feels that you're, you're not welcome, you don't fit. He has come for you. Person who has walked with God for years and has drifted away or fallen away for whatever reason it happens, he's saying to you, you can come back for he has come back for you. Such is the heart of our God. It is a gift of salvation. John 3 tells us that the wind blows where it chooses and when the spirit falls and a man is, woman is born again, it is a gift of God's sheer grace and goodness and sovereign work. And I think we can all agree on that. Any wonder John Newton? I mean, talk about an unlike. You guys have just called me as your pastor. This isn't confession time, don't worry. But imagine if you got my CV through the post and it said on my CV, well, you know, Daniel, uh, he, was, he grew up in a, in a rough area. He's got a very colorful vocabulary and he, you know, he, he likes to drink. And then as he got a bit older, he decided to go off into the Navy. Now, the Navy, as you know, is, is an interesting place in those days. And actually, he's got himself involved in the slave trade. And he has captured thousands of people from their homes, put them in a boat, and sent them across the ocean. Until one day in a stormy lake in Loch Gaul, Donegal, all good things happen in Ireland. God's Spirit fell on him as a gift of salvation. And he was saved. And he wrote that hymn, which we still sing. And it's amazing how that hymn, even for non-believers today, still has an impact. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. It's a gift. It's for you. Verse 47, Jesus receives all who come on to him. It is God's will that you should have eternal life. Don't fight it. If you feel the Holy Spirit of God upon you this morning, friends, surrender to him. By faith and repentance, he will receive you. It's for you. It's a gift. I love Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a famous Calvinist. He really was. And he believed it with all his heart. And yet Spurgeon was one of the world's greatest evangelists. 
And I used to go to churches and they would preach the text I've just mentioned here. In the Wesley churches, he would preach about the election part and upset them all. And then he would preach free grace. And then he'd go to the Calvinist chapels and he'd preach free grace and upset them. And then he would preach election. I love that. that. That's my nature. But what he said was this. Friend, it's not for us to know the sovereign, mysterious workings of God. It is for us to do as the Bible has demanded, as we heard about today from the mission team, go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We preach, we proclaim, God does the salvation. It's a gift, it's for you, and you'll be pleased to hear it to my last point. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it is forever. It is forever. How many of you get presents at Christmas time that you really don't like? I heard of a wee boy who every year his uncle would give him a doll. And every year he'd have to go to the shop to exchange the doll for something he wanted. And one day the shopkeeper said to his son, why does your uncle keep sending you dolls? And the wee boy said, well, he thinks I'm his niece. Sometimes we get gifts like that, don't we? Sometimes you ever had somebody give you something and then take it back? That's awful, isn't it? Or my granny did this to us once. We gave her a foot spa for Christmas and she gave it back to us next year for Christmas. It's a gift. It's for you. And it's forever. In depth, quality, and magnitude. Look there at verse 40. Oh, hang on. I've jumped around the Bible. Look there at verse 47b. The last half of the verse. Oh, that's why. Sorry. <laughs> truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Look up at verse 40. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks in the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. If you are saved by Christ and you are in his hands, nobody or nothing can snatch you from it. Paul in Romans 8 at the very end of the verse, I am convinced that neither life nor death, principalities or powers nor things to come in all of creation, any of it, cancer, COVID, bankruptcy, abandonment by family, no. And all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing will separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Those he saves, he keeps, the gift is forever. And I cannot wait for that day, for I believe in Jesus. I trust him for my salvation. I rest upon him daily. And even though I fall frequently, he still picks me up and keeps me going. And I long for the day when I could stand with this crowd in Revelation 17, verse 13. John, the author under the Holy Spirit of the gospel we're reading, is the author of Revelation. And he's shown the throne room of heaven. Verse 9, mission tribes, here's the goal of your mission. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Isn't that amazing? Even the Irish are there. Clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits in the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne with the elders, the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne of worship God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory, wisdom and thanksgiving, honor and power be to our God forever and ever. Amen. 
then one of the elders addressed me. I love this. I mean, I love the way angelic beings ask us simpletons questions. Who are these clothed in white robes and where have they come? John wisely says to him, well, sir, you know. And he said to me, oh, friends, we do live in a difficult world, don't we? For the gift of God and the gift of salvation and the one who keeps us going, we will come out of the great tribulation. We will come out of it. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple, and the one who sits in the throne will shelter them with his presence. They will hunger no more. They will thirst no more. The sun will not strike them or any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. What will you live for? Will you do the right work for the right reason, for the right person? Do you know that that person can give you eternal life? It is a gift. It is for you. And it is forever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, in the flood of words, I pray that what was of me would fall to the wayside. But what has come from you would do now the work of the Spirit that I cannot do, but go to the heart. Lord Jesus, would you have been seen clearly today by everyone. Again, I pray for those who know you and love you this day. Pray for my brothers and sisters who need tears wiped from their eyes, who need a fresh dose of your love and grace, who need encouragement, who need to know that their gift of salvation is forever and you will keep going with them. The work you started, you will bring to completion in them. May they know that by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning. And if there's any here who have been far away from you, O oh Lord, draw them back. Your love is not the scolding love, it is the love of the Father who waits for a prodigal. You call us to repent, yes. You call us to come back and say, Lord, receive me. But when we do that, you do. And if any in our midst do not know you this morning, oh, Holy Spirit, this is where we know that salvation is a gift from you because you must move in the heart. So, Holy Spirit, bring more people to the Savior today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll ask the worship team to come back up. And I'm sure you'll not be surprised that the next song is Feed Me O Thou. No, Guide Me O Thou, Great Jehovah. <laughs> there is feeding and bread in there somewhere. After the service, I'll come back and do the benediction. Then please do stay for tea, coffee, and fellowship together. <laughs>